0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, if you may be visiting with us, we have been walking together as a church through the gospel of Luke for many, many months now. And we are uh, studying uh, the book of Luke, looking at the life of Christ. And this morning, uh, we come to what I would just say are some of the more difficult teachings of Jesus. We're in a section where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to some of the crowd that comes to him. And he starts saying some pretty hard things things. Now, I don't know about you, but in our culture today, I have this sense like we love when Jesus is talking about how he uh, loves us and he so loved the world that God sent his only son. But then we get to some of these sections and we go, oh, I don't want to hear about that so much. Like, are we talking about two different gods here? Like, why are you talking about love in one case, and now you're talking about these hard things in another? So before we look at this passage, I just want to remind you of something that was really helpful. I thought Jeff did a few weeks ago when he was looking at one of these difficult teachings. He spoke on the section where Jesus kept saying, Woe to the Pharisees, you might remember that. And Jeff reminded us that when Jesus came, we're told in John chapter 1, he came always speaking grace and truth, right? It was never just truth and it was never just grace. In every conversation he had, Jesus spoke 100% grace and 100% truth. And so when we come to these hard sayings, I just want to remind us of that. Jesus is high grace, high truth all the time. He's always calling us up. He's calling us in to something. So when we come to passages like this, I'm reminding us that he's not calling us out. It's not 100% truth and he left the grace out the window here. It's Both. And so this morning, we come to a passage where Jesus is going to talk about repentance. Repentance. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word repentance, but when I used to think about this word, I used to totally think it was a call-out thing. The reason for that maybe is because when I was growing up, uh, we would sometimes—I grew up in the Bay Area—and my friends and I would sometimes go into San Francisco and we'd go to Fisher, uh, Fisherman's Wharf and see some of the other sites. And there would be people standing on street corners with a bullhorn yelling, "Repent, or you're going to go to hell. God's judgment will come upon you." And I would look at that and I'd feel that, and it would feel like call out. It felt like 100% truth and yet 0% grace. Now, there's a lot of different opinions about repentance in our world today. For example, the famous poet Lord Byron once said, the weak alone repent. I'd have to say that's probably how most people view repentance today in our world, as a sign of weakness. After all, we live in an era where individuals believe that I have the right to decide what is right and wrong for me. Don't tell me about sin. Don't tell me about judgment. Don't tell me about righteousness. I determine what is right and wrong for my own life. It actually reminds me of a famous poem that's going around a lot right now. You might see this in a lot of movies, actually. It's by William Henley. See if you recognize this on the screen. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Have you heard that? Have you heard that poem before? Do you see what's behind it? I want you to look carefully. Leave it up there. He's saying, I remember a time when people used to talk about a straight gate. When people used to talk about heaven and hell. Where people talked about this heavenly scroll that was filled with laws that I'm to obey and so on. But things have changed. I don't care about the gate. I don't care about heaven and hell. I don't care about the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Don't tell me about God's judgment Don't tell me about sin. Do not tell me about my need for repentance. On the other hand, you have a poet like Shakespeare who actually wrote that repentance was a sign of great strength. And of course, this is the teaching of the Bible as well, right? We see in both the Old and the New Testament that repentance is really the key of unlocking God's grace in our lives. For example, I came across this passage in Ezekiel 18 uh, in my morning devotions. And I just, I want you to sense God's heart here. Is this call out? Or is this call up? Is this calling them into something better? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Is that call out? 100% truth with no grace? Or is it call in? Is it both? Think about Jesus' very first sermon. One line, repent and believe. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. Or how about Peter when he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes out into the streets of Jerusalem and he begins preaching and people are cut to the heart and they're asking him, what what must we do in order to respond to this message? What does he say? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If you're following on your notes with me this morning in the Bible, repentance is the key to a fruitful life, both now and forevermore. And so this morning, we're going to dive deeper into this invitation of repentance. I thought about it this week. Maybe we need to repent of our understanding of repentance. And we need to see it as 100% truth, yes, but also 100% grace. Jesus' invitation, and Jesus' challenge. Now, the way we're going to do this is by turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And as I say every week, whoever's up here says, we have Bibles available for you if you'd like to follow along. We encourage you to do that. Somewhere near you, underneath a seat there, you can find a Bible, and you can find this on page 728. Now, what's interesting about this passage, before we pray together, is Jesus is actually going to address the issue of tragedy of human suffering. Why do people suffer? And it's out of that context that he's going to tell us about repentance. So if you don't mind, let's bow our heads one more time and ask the God of all truth and the God of all grace to teach us this morning what it looks like to be called up into life with him. Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes it's hard to hear the hard things. But we don't want to ignore those things. And so we trust that you had Luke 13 in mind for us today. And that you have a message of truth and you have a message of grace for us. So as we have already prayed, would you give us ears to hear and more than hear. Let us respond. Let us respond to you. Let us respond with you to your invitation of repentance. We pray for this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Now, before I start verse 1 of chapter 13, let me just set the scene a little bit. As I mentioned, uh, right before this, Jesus is in the middle of some pretty hard teaching. He's reminding the people that God is going to come again and he's going to judge. So you must be watchful. He tells people near the end of chapter 12 things like, I have come to bring division on earth, not peace. I am bringing a fire to the earth, he says. And then at the end of chapter 12, this is a way to lose a crowd. He basically calls the crowd a bunch of hypocrites. Because they care more about figuring out what the weather patterns are than they do about figuring out the spiritual times. That he has come to bring the kingdom of God. And it's in that context we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices This story begins with somebody bringing news of a tragedy to Jesus. It was something everybody knew about. It was kind of like a current event, right? They were telling them about the fact that Pontius Pilate, have you heard of him before? He was the governor of Judea and he had some enemies. And he decided that he was going to get rid of these enemies. Now listen, if you think our political climate is uh, like up up in flames right now, you should have lived back in. Because for Pilate, that just meant he was gonna have them killed. I'm going to send my hitmen at a time when they would least expect it, and I'm going to get rid of these political enemies, these people who are trying to rise up against me. And so here's what he does. He sends them to the temple where these Galileans were offering their sacrifices to God, and at a moment when they least expected it, these hitmen pounced, and they brutally murdered these Galileans. And so it says their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. Then, Jesus brings up another tragedy that had recently taken place in verse 4. He tells about another incident. Everybody probably knew about it. And that is where the eastern wall and the southern wall of Jerusalem meet. There's this little reservoir there, the Pool of Siloam, it's called. And right on that wall, there's a tower, probably for defensive purposes. And apparently, what had happened is that this tower had collapsed, and 18 people were killed as a result. The question that is brought to Jesus is a very natural question. It's a very relevant question today, a very contemporary question, right? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to these Galileans? Why did this happen to these 18 people? Why do such terrible things happen? Why do some people suffer more than other people? Would you say this is a pretty up-to-date question? Jesus' answer, of course, is totally unique and completely counterintuitive. He gives two wrong understandings of why tragedy and suffering take place. And then he gives the right understanding and the right response to tragedy. Let's look at the two wrong ways of understanding suffering. The first wrong way is what I'll call the religious or moralistic view. The religious or moralistic view. This was clearly the view of those who brought this news to Jesus. Do you see it there? Look again at verse 2 if you still have your Bible there. Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? (laughs) Again, look at verse 4. Do you think that they, the people who were killed under the tower, were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Friends, I got to tell you, the answer is unequivocally yes. That's exactly what we think. That was the belief of this time, of this day. If you live a good life, you'll have a good life. If you live in according with how God's laws are laid out, he owes you that kind of good life. If, however, bad things are beginning to happen to you, you might need to look at what's going on in your life. Maybe there's an unconfessed sin. God's not answering your prayers. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe there's something going on. If the tower is falling down on you, because something is going wrong with your life. This was absolutely the view of most people in Jesus' time. Take, for example, in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. Listen, even the disciples believed this. As he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see it? Somebody must have done something wrong because this case is a blind man. You think of Job's less than helpful friends. Have you ever read the book of Job? Chapter after chapter of this kind of understanding of suffering. In Job 4-7, they said, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? This was the belief of people in this time, this moralistic view of tragedy, Basically, bad things happen to people who deserve bad things. I know there are a lot of you who are thinking, well, that's a terrible attitude. But before I dismiss it, let me just suggest to you, there is something natural and even instinctive inside of me that tends to have this view. I want to believe that if my life is going well, it's because I have a part in that. Because I'm doing something Right. Tim Keller has a great illustration he uses often from The Sound of Music. It's getting close to Christmas time, so you know we're going to be seeing this a bunch on network television. But in The Sound of Music, if you've never seen it, Christopher Plummer falls in love with Julie Andrews, and as they fall in love, they realize they're going to live happily ever after, and so they decide to sing a song all about it. Of course they do. Now, I'm not going to sing the song. I know you're all sad about that. But here on the screen are the words to this song. Pay attention to their theology here. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Then they keep going, unfortunately, they say. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. I like the sound of music, but this is some bad theology right here. (laughs) Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Get it? So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What are they saying? They're saying, if my life is turning out this well, I must have done something right to deserve it. If my children turning out right, it's because I'm a smart parent. If yours aren't turning out so well, (laughs) if my career is going great, it's because I've worked hard and I'm intelligent. If you're stuck at the bottom, well... If I have a lot of good relationships that are the way I want, I must be living right. There's something natural, isn't there, in our hearts that wants to take credit for the good things in our lives. So what happens when things start going poorly? We don't sing songs about it. What happens is I think, what am I doing wrong? What have I done to deserve this? That's what happens. If bad things start to happen, what do you start to say? You say, am I not living right? Am I being punished for something, friends? We all do this, it's instinctive. I did it this week, I'm so ashamed to admit this to you. But I've had a pretty rough month uh, physically. I've been in the ER once, I've I've had all kinds of different things happening. On Tuesday, the icing hit the cake because I sprained my ankle playing basketball. And as I'm lying on the gym floor, my first thought was, this too, Lord? You're going to take this away from me too? And of I quickly, I caught myself. I go, oh, what am I, why am I thinking like that? The ver- first view of tragedy or hard things is the religious view. If I live the right way, God owes me. Friends, that is way more karma than it is Christianity. That is way more about karma than it is Christianity, but Jesus absolutely refutes this view. I hope you saw it. To both of these tragedies, what does he say? I tell you, no. They didn't suffer more because they deserved it. Jesus is not denying here that sin has consequences. It absolutely has consequences. Galatians 6, 7, we reap what we sow, but he flatly refuses the idea that all tragedy, that all suffering, that sprained ankles is due to the sin of the victim. In fact, he emphatically answers anyone who ever wonders about whose sin caused the man's blindness with these amazing words in John 9, 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Talk about turning this upside down. This happened, this suffering that he has to endure, happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. When terrible things happen, do you think that is retribution for sin? That God is punishing you? He says, no. Flat out, no. How do you know this is true? Well, think about all the lies you've told in your life and never received the consequences for. Think about all the relationships you've broken and you're still friends with them. Think about the times you've turned your back on God. Does he turn his back on you? Friends, there is not one of us in this room who has received 1%. Of what we deserve. This is important. God is graciously again and again, day in and day out, listen, not giving me what I deserve. That is called mercy. Listen, if this were true, right, the prophets and Jesus himself would have been some of the worst because they suffered the worst. But this happened so that God's glory might be displayed in them, he says. Now, the other approach to tragedy and suffering that's very common in our world today is what I'll call the irreligious approach. Just add an IR to religious. Irreligious approach or the cynical view. Rather than blame the people on whom the tower falls, this approach blames life or the universe or God or whoever. The religious view looks at who's under the tower Blames those people, the irreligious view, the cynical view, blames whoever's above the tower. The irreligious view says, most people are good, darn it. They're just trying to live a good life. They deserve a good life. They work hard, but they don't get a good life. Why? Because the universe is unfair, because life is illogical, because life stinks, because God is unfair, God is up in heaven on his throne, either unconcerned about what's happening to us or unable to do anything about it. These are your two alternatives. Blame the people under the tower or blame the person over the tower, but Jesus will have none of either. Life is not up to chance, there is no distant God unconcerned about the plight of his people. God is actively engaged in this world. And once again, his answer to that view is repent, or you too will perish. Life is not chance, it is a choice. And the choice we can make is repentance. So that means the right way to understand suffering and tragedy is basically Jesus' way, Jesus' view, which is the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. Jesus says when tragedy like this takes place, the answer isn't to blame those people or even to blame God. The answer is to look at your own life and realize I deserve to have the tower fall on me. That's repentance. Understanding that I'm the one who deserves the tower falling on me, and yet, in God's grace, he has kept it from doing so. On the one hand, Jesus says, don't you ever think those people are worse because they suffered. Don't even let that go in your mind. On the other hand, I want you to realize that every single person on the face of the earth deserves the tower to fall on them. On the one hand, Jesus says, don't get mad at God about the tower. Look back at Genesis 1. Look at how God created this world. Did He create it to have death and disease and war and poverty? No. These are the results of a world that has turned its back on God. And yet, the answer for you as well is the same repent. (laughs) Friends, the message here is the same as it is in all of Scripture. We sung about it this morning, Chuck talked about it. Have you come to this conclusion? I am a sinner. (laughs) In need of God's grace. I deserve the tower to fall on me. And that is why Jesus says, repent. Repent, or you too will perish. Not with a tower falling down on you necessarily. But eternally, because of sin. That's what we deserve. I know, and I told you, this is not a popular message today. But listen, if this building was on fire right now, would you want me going I'm sorry to interrupt you Um, no you'd want me to go fire would that be call out no that would be calling in Jesus is calling us in it's a warning yes 100% truth and yet here's the flip side of it it's 100% grace the good news of this passage the good news of the gospel is you do not have to have the tower fall on you because the tower fell on him instead. What is God's answer to tragedy and suffering? It's Jesus. That's not just a pithy saying. God's answer to tragedy and suffering is Jesus. On a cross on Calvary, he took the tower that I deserved so that I might live. We call that the gospel, 100% grace. Repentance is understanding and agreeing with God that I deserve the tower, but I don't have to have the tower because Jesus did it for me. I love Chuck's illustration this morning. Didn't you like that about uh, the, the river there? It's the same idea. Repentance is understanding I'm drowning. Jesus says, get on my back. Literally, get on my back. The back that bled for you. So that you might not have to drown. But you could have life and life to the full. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul writes. Call up. Call up. 100% truth. I deserve the tower. 100% grace. He took it for me. It's the gospel. That's why this is good news. Maybe to understand repentance further, we need to first talk about what repentance is not. If you're on your notes there, repentance is not feeling really bad about my sin. I think that's what repentance means to most people, just to have this vague, general sense of guilt and self-loathing. If I feel bad enough, then I must be repenting, right? Right? Now, don't misunderstand. Sin is terrible. It can destroy our lives. But feeling really bad for my sin is just another form of religion. Does that make sense? It's basically saying, if I just pile on the guilt, then Jesus is up in heaven going, all right, you feel guilty enough about your sin. Now I can forgive you. That's not how this works. That's called penance. That's called penance, it's not repentance. This is the difference between what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Feeling bad about my sin is just worldly sorrow. I'm sad that I got caught and now I'm gonna feel really guilty about it because that's what I think is gonna earn me God's forgiveness. That is religion, not Christianity. The other wrong view of repentance, if you're following there, is that repentance is not a promise to do better with our sin. Much of what passes for repentance in churches today is just sin management. We've come to believe that our righteousness is measured by how little I sin. And so if I focus on my sin, if I do battle with my sin, then I will become more righteous. But have you gotten into this cycle before? I'm going to try really hard to avoid sin, I'm going to sin. I'm going to see myself as a failure, I'm going to quit, then I'm going to feel guilty again, I'm going to try really hard to avoid sin. I'm not becoming more like Jesus. I love the saying that goes, sinning less does not equal becoming more like Jesus, but becoming more like Jesus will naturally result in sinning less. So what is repentance? If you're on your notes, repentance is a change of mind that brings a change of actions. A change of mind that brings a change of actions. The word we translate repent in the New Testament is metanoia, and it means to have a change of heart, to have a change of mind. It means agreeing with what God says about sin, agreeing with what God says about where it's gonna take me, that I deserve judgment and death, I deserve the tower, and then it's turning away from that life and walking into life in his kingdom, the invitation he gives me of grace. Scripture talks all about repentance, even when it's not specifically using that word. My favorite example is in Luke 15. We're going to get there probably in a few months here. When Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son. I know a lot of you know this story, right? This son asks his father for his inheritance. This is a slap in the face to a Jewish father. Because he wants to go spend it all on wild living, and he does that. But the money runs out, and he gets to this point in the story where he finds himself in the pigsty which is like the worst possible place in the world for a Jewish boy. And we read these words in Luke 15, verse 17. These are some of the most powerful words in Scripture. He came to his senses. He came to his senses. That's repentance. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He understands exactly what he deserves. He does not deserve sonship any longer. He has turned his back on the Father. Make me like a servant, he says. I deserve the pigsty. I deserve the tower. But the incredible good news of repentance is we don't get what we deserve. In fact, If you've read the rest of the story, you know we get far more than we can possibly imagine. Look at the rest of Luke 15. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's right. 100% right. but he gives us the robe, he gives us the ring and he gives us the feast. If you're following on your notes, repentance is bringing my life into alignment with God's word and will. It is agreeing with what God's word says about sin and judgment and it's aligning my life in obedience to his way. It is when we do this that we begin to bear fruit That we bring glory to God's kingdom and his name. And that's really the context for the remaining verses of our text this morning. We're almost done. But Jesus gives a little parable to kind of close out this teaching on repentance and the fruit that we can bear. In verse 6 he says, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now read verses 8 and 9 on your notes out loud with me. It says, Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This parable is teaching the very same thing Jesus was warning us about in the previous verses. Judgment is coming for all people. And unless our lives are bearing the fruit of repentance, we will come to our end. So the call is similar to what John the Baptist said earlier in Luke. Produce fruit in your life in keeping with repentance. How does a person bear fruit? Well, just like a fig tree I included verses eight eight there for you because this is how we produce fruit. It requires two things to produce fruit, right? We have two fruit trees. Number one, it requires weeding. And number two, it requires fertilizing. Weeding and fertilizing. I love how the gardener in this parable, which, by the way, represents Jesus in our lives, pleads for one last opportunity for the tree. This is astonishing grace and mercy. This is the time we live in right now. He is pleading for one last opportunity for the tree to bear fruit. And this begins with weeding, which is just another way uh, to describe repentance, to pulling out the things in our lives that might cause us from bearing the kind of fruit that He wants us to bear. It's a similar idea to what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Weeding, pruning, it's necessary for bearing fruit. So what are the weeds in our lives? What are the weeds in our lives that might keep us from bearing the kind of fruit Jesus wants us to bear? Well, maybe it's some bad ideas. Maybe we just have some really bad ideas that we need to be pulled out of our lives. Maybe we have that idea I was talking about earlier about karma more than Christianity. Do <clears throat> you think we need to weed ourselves of the idea that God's out to get me if I don't live a right way? I-, I need to weed myself of that. Maybe we need to weed ourselves of the ideas we have about our identity now that we're Christians. I know so many Christians who still walk around defeated. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. No, you're not. You're a saint who sometimes sins. You are a child of the Most High God. You have the robe, you have the ring, and you have the feast. So we live in that joy. Maybe we need to weed ourselves of this idea of penance. Well, if I just feel guilty enough, maybe Jesus will finally forgive me. Maybe we need to weed ourselves of the things we talked about the last two weeks in our series in Luke, right? Chuck talked about the idea that, hey, if I just grasp after an abundance of possessions, that's where I'm going to find abundant life. No, I need to weed my life from that idea. It's never going to satisfy me. Or as I talked about last week, you know, this idea that by worrying, I can bring security into my life. I need to weed myself from that bad idea. That's a bad idea. And I need to get rid of it in my life if I want to have fruit that grows. Maybe we need to weed ourselves of some bad habits we've gotten into. Maybe it's an addiction. And I'm not just talking about like the big addictions. I mean, we can get addicted to small things, right? I can get addicted to my phone. I can get addicted to social media. I can let things in my life start growing that take precedence... and cause my life not to have the good soil that Jesus wants me to have. Maybe I need to weed my life of some of the bad choices I'm making right now. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a financial decision. I don't know what it is for you. I could stand up here all day and give examples. But I am convinced that if we open up our hearts to the gardener who is Jesus, he will show us exactly the weeds we have, and he will gently, he will gently dig them out, and he will prune them, And he will help us grow. Number two, we need some fertilizing. If you're a gardener, you know that weeding isn't enough to bear fruit. You need good soil. And to have good soil, you need good fertilizer. And that's exactly the same for us. The question is, what fertilizer do we need in order to grow? Again, John 15 is really helpful here. Jesus said, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Don't ever forget that. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? What's the fertilizer? It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Abiding in him. Well, how do I abide in him? Get practical with me. Fine. How about... Engaging in the same practices that Jesus engaged in. Practices like being in God's word. How can we grow without being in his word? And prayer. And fasting. Or how about the discipline of community, making Sunday morning times non-negotiable in my life. I can't grow unless I'm being fed. Unless I'm getting fertilizer or, or a life group. Or a smaller community where people can sharpen me and encourage me. That's the kind of fertilizer I need. Or how about serving? I mean, it's great to bear fruit that looks nice, but I want to give that stuff away too. I want other people to enjoy the fruit that God is growing in my life. That requires serving. Or how about, as we saw last two weeks, generosity. That's some pretty good fertilizer in the life of someone like me who needs to get rid of the bad idea of worry. Be generous, he says to me. That will fertilize your life like nothing other, friends. The fertilizer is abiding in Christ, and we do that by practicing the graces God has given us. Friends, as we close, last thing. I hope you noticed that this parable is actually left open-ended. Much like the book of Jonah Jesus just doesn't tell us what happens to the tree. Was the tree spared or was the tree cut down? There's no way for us to know the answer to that question, and I think you understand that's on purpose. Because the question isn't, it, isn't what about the tree, the question is what about me? What am I going to do with this message that is 100% truth, yes, challenging, But it's also 100% grace. So as we close, here's the question I'll leave us to consider. Is my life bearing the fruit of repentance? Is my life bearing the fruit of repentance? Again, this isn't guilt. This isn't shame. This isn't fear. This is asking the Lord of all grace and the Lord of all truth. Is my life like a fig tree that is bearing fruit for your glory. We are gonna close as we often do with a song, but before we do that, we're gonna practice another fertilizing thing that we've been doing a lot in our church family lately. Did you know that silence is kind of a fertilizer? just spending some time in reflection and meditation, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts and in our minds, that is some really good fertilizer for us, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give us a couple minutes before we sing together to consider these two questions. What are the weeds that need to be pulled in my life, and what is the fertilizer I need to add in order for me to produce the kind of fruit that repentance can bring. Let me pray for us as we enter in. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to give us warnings like this, these hard teachings, these hard sayings. We don't want to shy away from them. To recognize that we deserve the tower. And we can't thank you enough that you took it for us. So, as we reflect on these words, help us just to open ourselves up to you, Spirit of the Living God, who is alive, who is active, who is personal, who is specific. And would you specifically reveal to us now any weeds in our lives that are keeping us from growing? any fertilizer in our lives that we need to add to bear the fruit that brings glory to your name. So we give you this time.